one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 318 for the week of Sunday, May 8th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me this evening here is Gene McCulka. How are you, Gene? Good evening, Sawyer. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us as well, Mark Ratterman. You can't see it, and of course I'm being very careful. I don't overdrive the microphone, but I'm standing on my seat, waving and yelling enthusiastically for what we're going to talk about tonight. The scary thing is I can picture you doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome as well. Oh, no. What? Nothing. Uh, And welcome as well, Gina Herlihy. Hello there. (laughs) Finally. You guys seen. Can you guys do this without laughing tonight? I'm going to try. I mean, we'll, okay. we'll give this a shot. Not going to be easy. So at least we have one sane person on this panel. Anyway, let's actually get into things here. The first one being the status of the STS-134 mission, the final flight of the Space Shuttle Endeavor. After having its problems with its auxiliary power unit, or APU, with that load control assembly that was giving them problems, they removed it, placed in a new one, and after performing some tests... They deem that the vehicle is now ready to try again, and that new try will be on May 16th, which is a Monday morning at 8.56 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Now, during a press conference, which was today, Monday, May 9th, 2011, at 3 o'clock, they announced a little bit more information about what they know about the LCA problem. And, Gene, could you help fill us in on that a little bit, please? Yeah, Pat Cruz went ahead and worked over, overnight, uh, pretty much uh, around the clock to go ahead and take care of the the, uh, the load control the load control assembly. There we go, we said it. Uh, as you all know, that was the uh, the sort of the, the smoking gun in this whole this whole affair. Uh, went ahead, removed it, and apparently they had to go ahead and put this thing on a bench. And go ahead and test each one of the uh, the circuits within this thing to make sure that uh, they uh, indeed found their smoking gun. And Mark, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, divert to you for for a lot of the te- technicals on that. You know, it, it's one of those type events that uh, I'm 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 happy to see and I hate to see at the same time because yeah, they ruled out they ruled out a lot of things that it wasn't. Uh, they weren't actual, they weren't able to find the actual root cause of what caused the scrub, but they feel like they have a good handle on it, uh, based on the tests that they did on the heaters, the thermostats, the wiring, the load control assembly. And, uh, today during the press conference, I was, I was catching part of it 
and I made the comment on Twitter that I am super impressed with their troubleshooting and their workflow process on this uh, to the point that during the press conference, I believe it was Mike Moses even mentioned that one of the things that they were checking with their workers that are that are doing the work out at the pad and, and elsewhere, they're checking with them to make sure that they're good for rest, that they're not working their crews and working their people to the point where um, and I've been in this situation myself where you start making mistakes because you're tired and, and when it goes to the extreme, you actually get to where you lose track of, of what you're doing and where you've been and where you're headed. And so they're making real, real careful not to get in that situation. So that's encouraging to hear that, that, uh, the top management is, is that interested and takes that input from the people actually doing the work. But, uh, they replaced, um, some overtemp thermostats that are that are part of this whole system. They replace some runs of wiring that go from the load control assemblies out to the uh, heaters on the APUs and on the fuel lines that feed the APUs from the hydrazine tanks. Uh, I found out something during the press conference today that I that I didn't realize that uh, they made the statement that hydrazine has a freezing point. He said it's not exactly the same as water, but hydrazine freezes at a temp- temperature similar to water. Right. And so you can, you can see why, um, you know, during the point where they start introducing the liquid hydrogen and oxygen through the shuttle to the external tank, that they want, uh, they want the temperatures to maintain at a, at a nice, uh, a nice, a nice range within the APU and fuel tanks and fuel lines. So that underscored the importance of it. But anyway, they replaced some overtemp thermostats. They replaced wiring that runs from uh, all of those from those points. They had a quite a lot of things along with the testing we talked about last time. Uh, part of the testing, they, they had to break connections to to do the the testing to rule out whether they had a problem with heaters or not. And so they had splices that had to be. Uh, remade. In other words, wiring connections that had to be reconnected, but they have to be reconnected in a, in a space flight, uh, safe condition. And so all of those things took time along with the testing. And uh, Mike Moses did mention one thing. He said, I found this out literally as I walked over here. Right. That back in June, and I can't recall the, the exact flight sequence where Endeavor would have been would have been looked at, but they saw a current spike from an overtemp thermostat being tested in the orbiter processing facility. And they saw it when they looked at some, some very, very fine detailed high speed data recordings. And since they just found that, they're going to go back and look at tests that were done ra- last night and get that detailed analysis and that high speed data and, and look and make sure there wasn't any Real short duration current spikes when the overtemp thermostat did its its thing to cut off the heater circuit, and so they're being real careful. And they 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 said that they feel confident that with this behind them that they'll be ready to fly. And that's of course that's how they set the launch date and are getting everything ready to go. And Mark, they they mentioned they they did check for hydrazine leaks, correct? Because hydrazine leaks would be bad if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, hydrazine is yes. only flammable in the atmosphere. Yeah, and and that would be that would not be good, especially during reentry. Because I know now, one other thing they were concerned about was also if those heaters weren't working properly, the heating and freezing cycles of 
the tubing in which the hydrazine goes through, they don't think that it could handle the pressures. Now, was was I believe too the 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 I think there was some sort of question about replacing the heaters themselves, and you really can't do that. These the Mark, Mark these these heaters, if I if I recall, are just you know coated with all sorts of insulation, and and in order to get to them, you'd have to peel off all this insulation, and uh, in the process of peeling this insulation off, you might be you know gumming something else up in the process, and they're correct, and that's why they they just decided that. That might not be the way to go here. Oh yeah, the uh, the the heater A circuits and the B circuits, they actually wrap around, for instance, the fuel line that goes from the uh, hydrazine fuel tank to the APU. So these heaters wrap the fuel line, and there's serious amounts of insulation over them too. So right. it would be a, a very big deal to tear that down. And in order to do that, you've got to keep your debris contained you've got to keep uh, got to keep things clean so that's one thing that you know I think about how you would do that kind of work in in the aft compartment and you have to be careful from what I've read uh, where you put your feet where you sit what you grab to reach I mean it's it's an area that you can work work safely in but it's an area that you have to be very very careful in too and so all of those things would compound to to put an unacceptable well not unacceptable just an unnecessary risk at this point with everything else they've seen in their testing yeah i mean you'd you'd never want foreign object debris hanging out in in the aft compartment um the other thing you did mention too mark was about uh, the workforce itself they were being extraordinarily careful about uh working the workforce a little too hard. I think there was a question, too, put to uh, Mike Leinbach about the workforce and did the depleted workforce uh, have, you know, because you don't have all of the people there right now because the program is shutting down, did that workforce, you know, did that depleted workforce play a factor in any of the uh, uh, repairs? And, um Mike Leinbach basically said, well, you know, I believe that he said that there was some issue uh, with the uh, APU engineering group, but uh, he said something rather, rather, I thought was rather startling and from a, and you don't usually see this from management. He said, uh, quote, if a milestone needs to slip because we don't, because of work, workforce fatigue, then it slips. Uh, Again, Mark, going back to your uh, observation on how well upper management was really, really looking after the troops. So hats off to both uh, Mike Moses and Mike Leinbach for uh, for really, really looking after uh, the folks that are taking care of these birds that are left over. I'm very, very impressed. I've, I've put in on a very, very few occasions about a 30-hour, 32-hour workday. And trust me, it ain't pretty. <laughs> I've done that too. It's it's not fun at all. Um, the crowd for the launch. Uh, some folks were wondering if those those numbers are going to dwindle because of the uh, uh, how early this launch is going to be. It's going to be a little bit before 9 a.m. in the morning on uh, uh, on Monday, May 16th. They're still saying though that they're expecting a heck of a lot more traffic. For this launch than they had for 133, so uh, beware out there, guys. You're still going to have the pileup out there trying to get out of the out of KSC. So beware. 
also there were some other other things too with reference to this there was some some discussions as as to what this little delay is going to do to uh to STS-135 and um Mike Moses was quite quite clear he's not going to go ahead and put a punctuation mark on a possible launch date for STS-135 at this point until STS-134 is is pretty much home I believe he said, too, there are some things that you have to do with uh, STS-135's external tank, uh, which I believe is ET-138. That one had the uh, the infamous stringer problem that was a, that uh, was uncovered during uh, the STS-133 event. And uh, that tank's going to require a tanking test, unlike uh, 122. So uh, that tank, tanking test is going to take at least, a, what, I, I believe he said during the, the press conference, it was about maybe six days. Um, uh, one reporter tried to pin uh, pin uh, Mike Moses down on on July 4th being a potential launch date for uh, uh, STS-135, and and Mike Mr. Moses did not take the bait. <laughs> he basically said uh, that was just one of the dates we had in the hopper, and right now pretty much all bets are off uh, until essentially 134 comes home. And something to keep in mind, I heard that as well, but he's, he also said that uh, this is not your typical pad flow. Right. He said, we're, we're going to have to, probably about two days after launch, we'll get a chance to assess the pad, see if we have typical repairs or less than, less than typical damage to the pad, or maybe more damage than usual. And he said, at that point, we'll be able to, to tell you if we're going to have about a 14-day time period to uh, get the pad ready for the vehicle to come out and so we're not even going to get a rollover date until uh, till post launch and and then they'll start to get things nailed down so we got to wait got to be patient however the yep. prediction now is that uh, we're probably going to slip into mid-july is what they were saying again they wouldn't confirm a date they wouldn't confirm anything but they figured that they would probably be slipping into july when uh, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it usually takes about 14 days, plus or minus, to go ahead and and repair the launch pad for the next flight. I think I heard that on, at the press conference today. Right, that's what I heard as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, they said um, for this one, give it 14 days, plus or minus one week. Okay. Um, yeah. I, and and the launch date for 135. I was off off air when we were sort of doing pre-show. I was thinking, gee, wouldn't it be really cool if it was July 16th or July 20th? Just just think about those two dates there for a minute and look think, in your history books. Think back to 1969. Yes. That would be pretty great because there were rumors originally about July 4th, but July 16th and July 20th would be just as patriotic and uh, just as fitting. Mm-hmm. But then again, as they were saying, uh, the crew working on the vehicle and the crew – that will be flying the vehicle, their safety all comes first. So exactly. if it takes longer, then it takes longer. And they were saying basically that when it comes to launch windows in July, that they don't have that much to worry about in terms of conflict. Yeah, pretty much, uh, I believe Mike Moses said uh, July is pretty much open. I think there was one, um, I think there's a, uh, I, I almost want to yeah, I, I almost I almost said the wrong launch vehicle there. Sorry, thank you for for the correction. I knew there was the, there's one vehicle out on the range, but uh, pretty much all of July is is an open book. Right, the launch of that is currently scheduled 
It's a Delta IV. It's a GPS satellite launching July 14th. Continuing along, there was one launch that did occur, and that was the launch of an Atlas rocket carrying a United States military early missile warning detection satellite. That launch of the Atlas was also the Atlas program's 50th successful launch. Indeed, um, and that uh, Atlas launch goes ahead and also clears the range out for STS-134. The cargo that uh, this particular vehicle was carrying was simply called the Space-Based Infrared System, or CBRUS. Um, it's a uh, two-sensor package, and it is designed to go ahead and take a look for any incoming missiles that are coming into United States territory. So it's something that uh, is uh, definitely, definitely required and needed uh, for, uh, for our own protection. So it's good to know that that's there. I don't think we have any of those currently in orbit, do we? That we know about? Uh, well, not that we know about. <laughs> <laughs> you notice how I chose the word there carefully. Yeah. Um, you know, so th but this is the first time that the Air Force, is, I believe, is using an infrared-based system to go ahead and track that. So. Let's hope it works. <laughs> and let's hope we never have to use it. Amen to that. So, again, congratulations to the Atlas launch team for that successful launch. And may you have many more. Continuing along now to possible successful launches is the announcement of SpaceX COTS-2, which is their Dragon capsule, and a possible rendezvous with the ISS. But there have been rumors spreading around of a possibility of combining COTS-2 and COTS-3, which would mean not just rendezvousing with the International Space Station, but an actual docking. So what are the rumors going around? Well, it's not a rumor. Um, this is something that uh, that Space Exploration Technologies is uh, advocating. In fact, I believe Elon Musk is uh, uh, was actually advocating uh, that after uh, the COTS-1 flight because it was such an unqualified success. Um, there's a couple of flies in that ointment, however. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the Russians are saying that uh, we're not going to go ahead and let the uh, the SpaceX vehicle or any other of the commercial vehicles anywhere near the International Space Station until they have assurances that these vehicles are safe and can do exactly what they are advertised to do. Uh, and it is essentially uh, the COTS program or the uh, Commercial Orbital Transportation Services program to uh, essentially furnish that kind of information. Uh, I remember uh, when, when Mark, when you and I were down at, uh, at uh, the Kennedy Space Center uh, just about two weeks ago uh, covering the first launch attempt of Endeavor, uh, there was a meeting of uh, all of the uh, CC Dev 2 winners. And uh, I wanted to ask this question uh, in, in the public forum, and I didn't get a chance to do that. But I, I did um, ask uh, uh, Mr. Phil McAllister, who's, I believe, the program director of, of, of uh, CC Dev 2. Or, or, or the CC Dev program, um, what you know about this? And he said we welcome the scrutiny. Uh, it's up to us, meaning NASA and this off and the office he represents, to go ahead and furnish that information from from the uh, the vendor and pass that to the international partners. Uh, in all honesty, it is 
that particular NASA office that has to go ahead and act as the liaison between the commercial companies and uh, the rest of the ISS partners. So that is something uh, that that's that's something that that this office is going to go ahead and focus on. And I believe Mark uh, the article, which I think appeared in today, uh, meaning May 9th, uh, in today's. Uh, uh, NASASpaceflight.com indicates that indeed such paperwork was asked to SpaceX and they haven't really you know, forked it over yet, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, they refer to it being requested from SpaceX last month and uh, no response yet. And it's a complicated thing. It's, uh, you know, it's one thing to, to see the success of Dragon on its flight in December. But uh, it's another when you look at some of the issues that they've got to work around. What I'm has to do with uh, antennas that are on the Dragon capsule and and the characteristics of those antennas and and uh, radiation from the, the the transmitters equipment that's that's part of that, um, and also the fact that they've got some mission profiles they've been working on for the C2 and the C3 objectives. But they haven't got a mission profile that combines those two. So there's a lot of work to be done and uh, a lot of assessment by the NASA and the ISS partners. Yeah, so um, – and again, NASA is going to go ahead and basically have their hands full. They're, they're, they're basically have a, you know, the infamous political tiger by the tail in this whole thing. So uh, they have to go ahead and basically quash the uh, – any worries that the Russians or any other other of the national of the international partners may have on ISS, with any concerns from the uh, the commercial companies, but commercial companies too, they've got to provide some information as well. I'm sure, SpaceX will get around to, to getting that info together, especially if they're trying to go ahead and um, close a, an operational gap. And I'm sure that's what what this is really really all about. That's one of the reasons why they want to combine. Um, COTS 1 and 2, SpaceX probably has a fairly high confidence in in their material, but uh, again, that high confidence has to go at, go ahead and be transmitted to the rest of the international partners, and that hasn't happened yet. So, And it looks like there are some meetings scheduled for a few days from now and also early next week around when Endeavor will launch, and uh, they talk about flight readiness reviews for, for whatever plans they come up with by midsummer. so stay tuned. Indeed, stay tuned. This is going to be a really interesting story to watch. Sure is. Now, we were talking about, for all the youngins out there, opening up your history books. Well, we're going to open them up a little bit further, too, because a couple of days ago, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Alan Shepard's 15-minute suborbital hop into space, becoming the first American to enter the realm space and also the first ever mission into space which was open for the entire public to view as it occurred now i believe there was also a reenactment of it that occurred down at the kennedy space center am i right yeah they found some uh cleaned up audio of the um, actual mission which took took about what again about uh, roughly roughly 15 minutes and played that over some footage and there were some real giants over there as far as the on, on the dais as far as uh, the event was concerned uh, first the I, I believe the event was put together by Hugh Harris if the name sounds familiar to some folks uh, Hugh Harris was the 
uh, public affairs officer and essentially the voice of launch control during the early days of the shuttle program. Uh, he put together essentially an all-star uh, dais there. Um, Scott Carpenter, I believe, uh, was uh, present. Um, Jack King, who was the voice of Apollo launch control, was also there. Uh, three of uh, uh, Alan Shepard's daughters were also on the dais. And, of course, uh, uh, Charlie Bolden, uh, administrator, NASA administrator, was also there, there, too, to go ahead and say a few words. And Bob Cabana, the director of the Kennedy Space Center, former shuttle astronaut. That's very true. And uh, we, uh, you know, I, being the, the darn fool I was, I kind of live tweeted the whole whole event, and it was kind of funny walking through this time warp. I'm, here I am, I'm using Twitter under the, the Talking Space uh, banner, and I'm actually live tweeting this reenactment. It, it actually gave me a little goosebumps because here, here it was. We were actually sending a human being into space, but we were doing it in front of the entire world. Um, Yuri Gagarin, uh, his flight, uh, was uh, we all knew about it after the flight had occurred. This one was occurring with all the television cameras, and uh, uh, it was quite. Uh, it was again a little salute to um, both uh, President Kennedy and President Eisenhower, who demanded that NASA conduct all of its business uh, and all of its flights in the public eye. But it's just interesting how you know, we had a, a huge party. For uh, for Yuri's night and being the first, you know, the human species to go ahead and break the the surly bonds of Earth, but somehow or other, May fifth is somehow lost in all of that, and it, it's to me it's a darn shame. It's it's to me still a, a significant part. This is where it all started. This is why we we went to the moon. This is why we had the shuttle. It was because of this this particular event. So it's really really a a watershed event in uh, in spaceflight. And history indeed, and it's amazing that we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of so many events already. Yeah, they um, they actually had on the next day, I didn't get to see too, too much of it, but I saw some photos. They had a Corvette parade in downtown Cocoa Beach where a lot of the astronauts uh, participated in that were at the event. And I saw some great photos of Dick Gordon, of course, Gemini 11 astronaut and Apollo 12 command module pilot. Um, sitting on top of a Corvette. I mean, the Apollo 12 crew was so famous for their matching Corvettes, and there he was uh, perched atop of the back of that the car and being driven through the streets of Cocoa Beach with um, a bunch of the other astronauts. Uh, I was actually surprised Buzz Aldrin wasn't there because he's typically at all of these events. So Dick Gordon um, was the only astronaut present to represent the Gemini program, and Scott Carpenter was the only um, one out of the two remaining alive Mercury 7 astronauts attending the event, because over the course of the weekend, there was the uh, May 5th, the anniversary event that Gene just described. On the Saturday in the morning, they did have the Corvette parade in Cocoa Beach. Of course, Alan Shepard was famous for owning his Corvette, and one of them um, is on display in Kennedy Space Center in the Saturn V building. And um, later in the afternoon on um, Saturday at Kennedy Space Center at the Visitors Complex, they had the annual Astronaut Hall of Fame induction, and they do that every first Saturday in May, regardless of how the date falls. Um, they try to stay true to the fact that his flight was the first Saturday in May. 
And um, this year, in 2011, um, the Hall of Fame inductee class only had two members. One of them was Carol Bo Bobko. Um, he's a colonel in the United States Air Force, retired. And um, I think she's probably only the third female um, ast- astronaut in the Astronaut Hall of Fame, Susan Helms. And she's currently a major general in the United States Air Force. Uh, they were inducted um, among probably, oh, I want to say there's probably now maybe 50-ish, probably, United States astronauts in the Astronaut Hall of Fame. So uh, John Zarella from CNN, who uh, covers space in Florida and the Caribbean for CNN, um, was there as the MC of the event. And um, I watched it on NASA TV. I, I've attended in the past a couple of times, and it's, it's quite a lovely evening. They do a gala dinner on the Friday night. And during the day at the Kennedy Space Center, um, those people that attended the the gala get front row seats, but they do open it up to the public for other people to to watch this event take place. And it's nice. They have another astronaut um, honor by telling stories of the inductee. And uh, there's a, a little video montage set up, and then they present them with the actual medal. And when they put the medal on them they're officially inducted in the hall of fame but it's all a fundraiser they they use that event as a fundraiser also for the astronaut scholarship foundation which again is a a wonderful cause um the astronaut scholarship foundation they give out about i think one hundred ninety thousand dollars a year in the form of ten thousand dollars per scholarship over 18 or 19 colleges and they're always the same schools and they give that award to, I believe, a junior or a senior or a graduate student um, majoring in science and engineering. So they have to, I believe, win it on merit-based. I'm not even sure if it is need-based, but it's totally merit-based. And usually, as a part of this event, the current year scholars are also there, and they're honored as well. So it's a nice event. If you can get to it, definitely check it out. My sense is that the classes were bigger when this started, but perhaps the potential of having less astronauts be able to have accomplishments, they're probably making the class sizes smaller, so down to like maybe two at a time like this year. Well, there's a good number of them. There's at least 500 people that have flown in space. So, Right, but at this point, I mean, usually these guys are commanders slash pilots or, you know, definitely have a list of credentials, Um you know, multiple missions, that sort of thing. So I think they probably want to um, <clears throat> obviously share the wealth with as much as the astronaut corps as possible. But at the same time, they probably don't want to induct too many at a time if we really go a stretch without uh, more American astronauts being able to, you know, set some milestones. So, Gina, is there, for the astronaut uh uh, scholarship Foundation, is there any way folks can go ahead and contribute if they want to go ahead and write a check to those folks? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to astronautscholarship.org. And in addition to having the Gala events, once in a while they actually have auctions of um, items that have flown in space or other memorabilia that they can bid on. Um, sometimes they also have signings or um, other special items that you can literally just purchase, and a lot of that money goes right to the scholarship fund. Um, They do raffle tickets on things like Omega Watches. Omega always sponsors them. 
since yeah. that was the official watch or timepiece of uh, the early pioneering astronauts. That's the watches that were worn on the moon by the moonwalkers outside of the um, their spacesuits. So uh, they do have lots of fun razors throughout the year. And Sawyer, can you go ahead and arrange for that to be put onto the show notes? It'll be in the show notes. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Anything to support a great cause. Indeed. Actually, I know that um, I believe the weekend of July 31st, um, they are actually doing the 50th anniversary of Apollo 15. So that would include Dave Scott and Al Warden, who was command module pilot, and Dave Scott, the commander of the mission. Unfortunately, lunar module pilot Jim Irwin is deceased, but the two of them should be there representing the mission. I'm sure they'll have a gala uh, night, and I'm sure lots of other moonwalkers and Apollo astronauts will be present um, as they have been so far for each of the 40th anniversary of these missions. So, sorry, I misspoke. It's the 40th anniversary of Apollo 15, but um, an impressive mission. Dave Scott will be there, first guy to drive on the moon. And uh, Al Warden um, gets credit for the furthest away EVA in interstellar space is he had to go outside the command module on their way back from the moon to retrieve film capsules. So um, pretty impressive thing to do. I'd be pretty scared if I got out there and I didn't, I couldn't look at the earth below. So, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're an amazing crew. Uh, it, definitely, if you can get to Florida at the end of July, I would definitely check it out. All right. Our next story is an interesting sale that was made recently. I'm going to tell you guys what was sold, and I want you to guess how much it sold for at auction. All right? It was a Russian spacesuit worn during the 1975 Apollo-Soyuz test project. It was worn by Alexei Leonov, the Soyuz commander, which he wore during docking, launch, and reentry. Oh, hmm. Gene, how much do you think it went for? I will... I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll really go out on the limb. This is probably way too high, but uh, a quarter of a million, two hundred fifty. Gina, fifty thousand. Mark, most I thought fifty thousand, and then I thought, well, you know, something like that, maybe a couple hundred thousand. Gene, you were ridiculously close. It went for two hundred and forty-two thousand dollars. Huh. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, the the very fact that Alexei Leonov wore that suit on such a historic flight to begin with. Alexei Leonov was the first uh, human being to go EVA or extravehicular activity. Uh, he did not wear that particular suit, but uh, uh, he, you know, Apollo, the Apollo series test flight kind of sort of opened up some new uh, new cooperation, and and I. Guess the ISS is sort of its uh, uh, sort of the beneficiary of all that. This was sold at an auction house in New York City. The buyer was not identified, but two hundred forty-two—that's almost a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised. I mean, it's still it's a great piece of memorabilia, and I, I don't know what that individual is going to do with it. I hope it I hope he loans it out to a museum somewhere, and uh, so everybody can appreciate it. That's just spectacular. Were those custom suits? I I don't know back then. I don't know if they were using the you know the the one size fits all like the the 
or one size fits some like the uh, uh, the Russian EVA suits do now. Um, but uh, I I do not know. I'm going to venture to guess and say yes, but I'll have to do my homework. One size fits all is pretty much the American space shuttle suit too. I mean, there's only been a handful of women that have been able to train for an EVA because they basically have to be about five ten. Right. I know they mix and match waists and legs and gloves. And we will be talking about that very subject in the not-too-distant future. Oh, I'm thinking a special clip show, huh? Oh, yeah. We talked to some folks over at the Kennedy Space Center when Mark and I were there covering um, STS-134, the first launch attempt. And there was a team over there from uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center discussing the the current EVA, um, the, the current EMU. And we'll be going ahead to uh, discuss their plans for future spacesuits. So it'll be a it'll be a fun discussion. Can't Gene, wait to share it with everybody. Well, Gene, I'll see you and, and raise because I talked to an astronaut and asked one of the one of the astronaut he thought spacesuits. So well, let's 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 little do du- dueling recording event here and see who. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we'll see who gets the better downloads. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let, let, let's see how deep is my wallet here. I'll have to go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Gina. We pro- we told you we couldn't get through without laughing. I figured as much. We've got one last story though. While we're talking about spacesuits, there were three astronauts, I'll say, that launched yesterday, which was Sunday, May eighth, two thousand eleven. They launched from Houston in a parking lot. And uh, this was about 12 o'clock local time. They launched, and they floated up to over 80,000 feet until they came back down to the Earth, lost in the bayous of Louisiana. These three brave crew members were a rubber chicken, a teddy bear, and a stuffed pig. That would be Camilla SDO, the mascot of NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory. There was also... Astro Fuzz, who is also known as Fuzz Aldrin, and he was representing bears on patrol. And the last one was a pig named Sky Blue, and that a was a flying pig, Sawyer. Don't forget that <laughs> a flying pig. Excuse me, a and, flying pig. And that was representing, I believe, AIAA. Yes, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. It was representing their uh, educational outreach programs. So yesterday they took their hot air balloon and they landed somewhere in the bayous of Louisiana in a wildlife reserve. And uh, right now the hunt is currently going on for the three of them, and we hope that they're surviving. I did speak to the person who is in charge of the mission, and they did say that they were given survival training. <laughs> okay. Remember, we're talking about a rubber chicken, a teddy bear, and a flying stuffed pig. The uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. Need I say more? I'm I'm trying to keep a straight face. Um, yeah, the uh, the Fuzz Aldrin is is part of Bears on Patrol. Bears on Patrol is a pretty good uh, organization. Essentially, ver- furnishes uh, teddy bears uh, to uh, kids uh, that uh, have just had a traumatic event happen to them in some way, shape, or form, and uh, those bears, I think, are available to any police force that wants to go ahead and use them. I may have to go ahead and check their website to make sure of that, but uh, 
Um, I'm also trying to find out too how many uh, police forces go ahead and utilize that organization, but it's a it's a neat thing. It, it tries to go ahead and and, and take a, a small child who's been traumatized and and make him feel make him or her feel a little better, and uh, by giving them a teddy bear. So you know, if you guys have got some extra change rattling around in your wallet, you know, go ahead and and throw it at at these guys as well after you've. You've doned out some money, some money to the Astronaut uh, Scholarship Foundation. Um, and well, you think course, our listeners are rich? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not right now, but anyway, um, the uh, uh, the other the other uh, deal was uh, Sky Blue, I believe, who is the flying pig, and again, that is representing the AIAA's educational uh, outreach programs and so on. So, if you're a member of AIAA, you're already funding that. Um, these were all science missions. In fact, they were all mascots that were advocating science, technology, engineering, and math education by doing this flight, which on board, just so you know, on top of a few experiments and some patches were three GoPro HD cameras. So I can't wait to see if they find everything intact, the shots that they got of the Earth from 80,000 feet, because we've seen... We've seen images from balloons at 50,000 feet, and you can see the curvature of the Earth. Yeah, I've heard I've heard some conflicting um, reports on how high the balloon actually got. Uh, I've heard 80. I've heard I've heard 95,000 feet uh, before the thing uh, started coming down, and I believe it wound up just uh, well again, Sawyer. The uh, um, the uh, the vehicle wound up just. Uh, east of Sabine Lake, outside Louisiana, in a swamp, in uh, one of the, uh, the in a wildlife refuge over there, and I believe after an exhaustive search, the rescue team could not find the uh, the capsule, and uh, they are now in in the hands of the U.S. Uh, wildlife Service now. Yep, the only way they can get to it is by airboats. So, as we were talking about, we're saying that. Uh, they really have to be careful because to alligators, uh, you're talking about pork, chicken, and bear. So we've got a problem here. Oh, jeez. As one person said on Twitter, Camilla, mmm. Oh, jeez. Yes, um, we have a really tough situation here. There's even an image, a sketch of what they possibly look like right now. The image shows them trekking through the swamps, fending off alligators, sky blue, with a machete in hand, ready to attack. Yeah, the, the 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 sketch is a little wrong, though. If I recall exactly, the Gemini, Mercury, and Apollo astronauts all used their were trained to use their parachutes uh, for clothing, and and I don't see that looking like parachute material what these guys are wearing. So I'm not too sure that they they paid much attention to their uh, their their training. Um, I understand though that the uh, the entire world could track uh, the the satellite, the satellite, the, uh, the balloon as it was it was making as its its ascent. I believe its call call sign was N4BWR-11, and uh, if you punched that into any type of like flight uh, uh, flight path tracker that's that's out there on the internet, you could have you could have gone ahead and and tracked. Thing and and actually seeing where this was at any given time, but uh, ignoring the false data it was giving, yes. Yeah, exactly. There was a big worry at one point that uh, the data went from it being at eighty thousand feet 
to 80 feet over the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, at this point, it seems like it would have been easier to retrieve, but whatever it is, it was a data blip that worried everybody for 15 minutes, but they are somewhere in Louisiana, and they're being rescued, so hang tight. <laughs> well, again, if it brought attention to the causes that uh, each one of these little mascots were supposed to represent, again, um, Camilla with the SDO program and and uh, and the science outreach that NASA is performing, um, uh, Fuzz Aldrin with uh, Bears on Patrol, and uh, of course uh, Sky Blue with the AIAA and their um, their educational programs. If it if it got more awareness for that for those particular programs then it, it did its job and people were excited actually watching the the flight plant and watching the flight path so it was it was no matter how the whole thing winds up it, uh, it it the whole thing did its job so if even if the thing isn't recovered even if the capsule is not recovered for for some time or not recovered at all um you know they, they didn't give their lives for nothing and just so you know they are all three of them are on facebook and twitter so uh, just an FYI, the commander of the mission was Camilla, the pilot was Fuzz, and the mission specialist was Sky Blue. <laughs> I, this is such a hard story to do with the straight. I, I, I am just trying to keep my. I'm just trying to keep a straight face. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we can post links to their Twitter accounts in the uh, show notes, and uh, you can search for them on Facebook. Their names are Sky Blue. Astro Fuzz and Camilla SDO. So all the best luck to our uh, to our uh, <laughs> I don't know what to call them to our brave inanimate brave astronauts. Explorers. <laughs> yes, brave intrepid explorers who I hope brought uh, some some more attention to some uh, science programs and a and an extraordinarily worthy cause. All I can say is before I get a hold on them, I am making sure they take a shower. <laughs> on that <laughs> note, let's end this podcast right here. So I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Uh, I'm still recovering from that. <laughs> it was a fun night. Thanks. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Just wondering, meals, wheels, wheels, combine, the air, the air, version, version. Ooh. <laughs> Night, night, everybody. I'm sorry, Gina. Thank you for joining us, and we apologize for our incessant laughter. No, it's all right. But you know what, Mark? I really don't think we have to worry about these three astronauts starving to death. <laughs> what? They're going to look at each other? <laughs> this is so wrong and so terrible. So again, thank you to our three brave, intrepid explorers for joining us on Talking Space. Thank you for listening and downloading, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.